Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Investing Insights Podcast from Morningstar. In this week's podcast, we find opportunities in a lagging sector. Russ Kinnell offers ideas for an IRA. Ben Johnson unpacks a trend between mutual funds and ETFs. Andrew Willis shines a light on a virtual healthcare company. And Christopher Inton discusses uranium prices. Let's get started. Here are three real estate stocks our analysts like. Real estate stocks have been substantially lagging the broader U.S. equity market. As a result, many real estate stocks are trading at attractive levels. In addition, the average dividend for real estate firms is higher than the rest of the stocks that Morningstar analysts cover. Today, we're looking at three real estate stocks our analysts like. Simon Property Group has sold off significantly over the past few months as fears of the coronavirus impact on brick-and-mortar retail sales grew among investors. Simon has long-term leases with tenants, so it should continue to receive rent, even during the current crisis. While many weaker retailers may go bankrupt due to the lack of sales, we think Simon's attractive portfolio will be able to quickly fill any vacancies. Additionally, Simon recently acquired Class A mall competitor Taubman Centers, which should increase cash flows and provide more leverage when negotiating with tenants. The portfolio of Regency Centers is filled with high-quality assets and population-dense, affluent markets. The company focuses on owning grocery-anchored centers, with more than 80% of its properties featuring a grocery anchor, and grocery stores representing slightly more than 20% of annual base rent. Regency's grocery anchors are strong draws to the centers, as they produce sales per square foot well above the national average and are very healthy with low occupancy costs. Grocery has been one of the retail categories that has seen sales growth increases during the pandemic, driving consistent business to the rest of Regency's portfolio, which should maintain high occupancies. Ventas owns high-quality assets in the senior housing, medical office, and life science fields. While the company's medical office and life science portfolios should be relatively unaffected by the coronavirus's outbreak, the senior housing portfolio is likely to experience a very significant impact to occupancies, as the virus has the highest lethality rate among senior citizens. However, while the virus will likely continue to negatively affect net operating income for the industry in 2021, we think the industry should see strong long-term growth from the coming demographic wave of baby boomers aging into senior housing facilities. Six days a week, we deliver the latest news for investors. Just say, Alexa, enable the Morningstar skill or visit Morningstar.com slash Alexa. Now, Russ Kennel from Morningstar Research Services shares three funds for an IRA with Susan Jabinski from Morningstar, Inc. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Investors have until April 15th to make an IRA contribution if they want it to count for 2020. Joining me today to share three ideas for an IRA is Russ Kennel. Russ is Morningstar's Director of Manager Research and Editor of Morningstar Fund Investor. Hi, Russ. Thanks for being here today. Glad to be here. So Russ, your first idea is a bond fund. And bond funds are great ideas for the IRA wrapper because you really get to take advantage of the tax efficiency. Uh, Specifically, you've chosen a multi-sector bond fund. Can you talk a little bit about what multi-sector bond funds bring to the table today in this low interest rate environment that we're in? Uh, Yeah, these are aggressive funds that uh, take on a fair amount of risk to get that yield. Uh, They'll buy foreign bonds, they'll buy emerging market bonds, they'll buy high yield debt, they'll sometimes do currency plays. Uh, So they've got a lot going on 
uh, but the well-run ones are very rewarding in the long run. So I, I like Loomis Sales Bond uh, because Dan Fuss, is, even though he's retiring at the moment, uh, we're really behind him, grown to, to know the rest of the team. And we have a lot of confidence that it will continue to be a good investment even after Fuss retires. Now, interestingly, your two other picks are international stock funds. Does that, so what do you think of U.S. stocks today? Is, is By choosing international funds, are you making a statement about the U.S. stock market? Only a little. I think U.S. stocks, particularly growth stocks, have had a tremendous run. Uh, so I think foreign is probably a good way to go. Uh, if nothing else, at least, you know, uh, rebalance your portfolio so that uh, you don't lose that foreign weighting. So yeah, I think I think foreign's maybe a little more attractive uh, than the US today. And your first pick in that space is Artisan International Small Mid Fund, and that lands in Morningstar's foreign small mid category. And it has a, an experienced manager who's focusing on um, disruptive companies. What else do you like about it? Uh, yeah, this is a very aggressive uh, fund run by a manager who had a lot of success at Oppenheimer, put up strong returns there, and, and now has built a team at Artisan. Uh, so I think if you want a really aggressive fund with tremendous return potential, uh, this is a great fund. It's not necessarily a fund you want to make at the core of your portfolio, but if you want an aggressive uh, fund with high return potential, I think there's a fund that's still got uh, a nice runway. It's uh, not a big asset base um, and, and a lot of return potential. Uh, US, we think of growth companies, we tend to think of the U.S., but there's a lot of really good ones outside the U.S. as well. And then lastly, um, you, you like Vanguard International Dividend Appreciation Index Fund. This is also an international fund, but it skews more towards larger companies with growing dividends. What should we know about this fund? Yeah, I, I deliberately chose an index fund because on the one hand, when you think about uh, the IRA, you may think about let's put any tax inefficient funds in there and that's fine. But your real goal, of course, is to uh, get to your goals to maximize uh, returns within your risk parameters and index funds do a great job at that. Uh, an index fund like this has that nice low maintenance to buy and not worry about it. Uh, in this case, uh, dividend appreciation is a nice strategy because uh, it leads you into high quality companies uh, and therefore tends to have some nice defensive characteristics as well as low costs, which we know work in all environments. And this is that this fund in particular is also available as an ETF. Is that right? That's right. So you could buy it as an ETF or as an open end fund through Vanguard. Great. Well, Russ, thank you so much for these great IRA ideas today. We appreciate it. You're welcome. I'm Susan Javinsky for Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. Watch all the Morningstar content you love from your living room. Download the Morningstar Roku channel and get up-to-date independent insights on today's markets. Be comfortable. Be informed. Next, Ben Johnson from Morningstar Research Services walks through ETF conversions with Susan Jabinski. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. A number of asset managers have announced that they plan to convert some of their mutual funds into exchange-traded funds. Joining me today to discuss the topic is Ben Johnson, Ben's Morningstar's Director of Global ETF Research. Hi, Ben. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me, Susan. So what are some advantages of conversions for fund holders? Many of the advantages of converting a mutual fund to an ETF are 
synonymous with the advantages of the ETF wrapper. It's all about where these funds will ultimately land, the packaging, the form that they'll ultimately take. And I would argue that chief amongst those is the relative tax efficiency of the ETF packaging versus a mutual fund packaging. Because ETFs have the ability to regularly send securities out of their portfolios on an in-kind basis, so they can offload stocks and bonds whole directly to a third party, as opposed to having to liquidate them to either sell down positions or meet redemption requests, they avoid unlocking capital gains distributions, which have become very frequent and in some cases very large in magnitude within the realm of open-ended mutual funds in recent years. So that's a big benefit uh, that would arise from a mutual fund to ETF conversion. There are other benefits as well. Uh, The ETF wrapper in many ways is just more cost efficient than the mutual fund wrapper. So notably within ETFs expense ratios, rarely do you see line items that are dedicated to compensating third parties for things like marketing or distribution, shareholder record keeping costs are lower. So there's the potential for expense ratios to come down a bit as funds pass through this conversion process. Lastly, transaction costs are likely going to be less because many ETFs trade commission-free across a large number of platforms, which has been a big development in recent years. Meanwhile, many mutual fund investors are still paying commissions as they transact in their mutual funds that they're investing in today. This is a, a key point of appeal, I think, you know, to the advisor market in particular, where they're making many transactions across a large number of client accounts in any given day and would much prefer to be able to save that money and allow it to compound to their client's benefit. So these are all synonymous, again, with the benefits that we know well about the ETF vehicle more generally that are you know, kind of beckoning from the other side of this conversion process that some mutual funds may undertake. Now, if I own a mutual fund that is going to be converted into an ETF, is that a taxable event for me? The conversion of a mutual fund to an ETF will not be a taxable event event for mutual fund shareholders. Their basis will remain intact. What ultimately investors will enjoy is effectively a, a form of tax deferral that they wouldn't otherwise benefit from if that fund were to remain a mutual fund see continued in some cases in persistent outflows, which in recent years have resulted in these large and in regular capital gains distributions. So again, the ETF uh, being somewhat unique in that it has that regular mechanism by which it can get rid of securities, meet redemptions without unlocking gains, which are kind of a negative externality created by you know what's either regular or in some cases bad behavior on the part of fellow fund shareholders. Uh, those externalities aren't socialized across all fund shareholders, they're externalized in the case of the ETF. The people who are buying and selling are the ones who are paying the taxes and absorbing a lot of the transaction costs that otherwise would be internalized by the fund. So Ben, what are some of the most notable um, conversions that we've seen so far or that we expect to occur in 2021? 
Well, we've only seen one conversion to date, and it actually was a, a hedge fund, a small hedge fund that became an ETF in the first week of, of 2021. That said, we've seen a small handful of asset managers, included among them Guinness Atkinson, and most notably, Dimensional Fund Advisors announced that they're looking to convert a number of their mutual funds to ETFs. And the DFA announcement, which happened in mid-November of 2020, is really the most meaningful to date. So at that point, Dimensional let the world know that at some point in 2021, it will be converting six of its tax-managed mutual funds into ETFs. These six funds combined held over $30 billion in investors' assets. They've seen persistent outflows in recent years, and in some cases, they've seen regular and sizable capital gains distributions. So given that these six funds were designed for what we can reasonably assume are acutely tax-sensitive investors, I think this is welcome news for them, given all the benefits we've discussed of the ETF vehicle as it pertains to deferring those taxes, uh, realizing them as you choose, as you liquidate, as opposed to when others choose to liquidate. So given all the advantages of the ETF structure, do we expect to see more of these conversions as time goes on? I expect that we will see more conversions as time goes on, but I, I don't think what you'll see is going to be a sweeping replatforming of the mutual fund industry onto an ETF chassis. There are any number of different impediments that can make this logistically complex, uh, including the fact that ETFs trade like securities. So clients who own ETFs need to have a brokerage account. So not all fund shareholders necessarily have a brokerage account today. It might not be linked to the account where they have their mutual fund holdings. There's you know, some paperwork and, and some plumbing issues there uh, that could make this incrementally more challenging. The benefits, too, of, of the ETF wrapper aren't necessarily going to shine through for all mutual fund investors. So many mutual funds are predominantly invested in defined contribution channels, for example, retirement plans, 401ks. The benefit of tax efficiency is, is really a moot point in the context of a, a tax-deferred wrapper. So I would expect that you know, many investors really wouldn't see the appeal and wouldn't get any benefit from having mutual funds that they own in their retirement accounts converted into an ETF format. The other important point to take into account is, is kind of the portfolio management aspect, if you will. So one of the all-important capabilities that uh, portfolio managers have in, in mutual funds is that when they're worried about capacity, when they're worried about applying their strategy successfully, and they see money coming into the fund, they have the ability to implement either a soft or a hard close and say, I've got enough on my plate. I don't want to invest at these valuations in my best ideas, or I don't want to invest in my 51st best idea in order to accommodate new money coming into the portfolio. Well, when managing a strategy in an ETF, that option is taken off the table. ETFs except under very extreme circumstances, cannot close at the portfolio manager's discretion. So capacity management is an all-important question that managers who are mulling a mutual fund to ETF conversion should be taking very seriously, as should the investors in those funds. 
Well, Ben, thank you so much for your time today, helping us unpack this mini trend that we're starting to see between mutual funds and ETFs. We appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thank you for tuning in. Now, Andrew Willis from Morningstar Research Services tells us about Teladoc. Some of the most successful stocks in the pandemic have soared as services went online. Zoom, Shopify, and Amazon solved our communications and consumer needs. But what about our health? Enter Teladoc, a leading provider of virtual healthcare technology. The company provides online doctor consultations alongside a suite of software that offers ongoing care in fields like cardiology, diabetes, weight, and mental health management. Amidst a massive medical crisis, it's surprising to see Teladoc still trading our fair value estimates, foregoing, so far, the same level of hype that we've seen inflate other pandemic-related stocks to unrealistic valuations. One of the main reasons is our increased confidence in the staying power of growth achieved beyond the pandemic. Equity analyst So Romanoff says the acquisition and integration of similar online health service providers InTouch and LiveOnGo went better than expected, offering diversification of services and new growth opportunities. And the company's subscription-based revenue model is set to recur yearly at around 80%. As of late last year, the company had more than 54 million members and 50,000 licensed providers, allowing it to match patients within 10 minutes of requesting care or a consultation. These kinds of game-changing figures have us raising our fair value estimate by around 23% to $225 US dollars a share. With an aging North American population, ongoing mobility restrictions, and opportunities to improve the acceptance of telemedicine insurance coverage with the new U.S. administration, we think this company's in good shape. For Morningstar, I'm Andrew Willis. And lastly, Christopher Inton from Morningstar Research Services talks uranium prices with Ruth Saldana of Morningstar Canada. If you're closely watching the markets in 2020, you may have noticed that uranium has been steadily rising. Morningstar analyst Christopher Inton believes that because of the pandemic and because of the results of the 2020 presidential election, the prices of the commodity have risen. But can that continue? He's here today to share his thoughts. Chris, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. First up, the price of uranium rose sharply at the beginning of the pandemic. It fell a little and then it rose again. What was the reason for this first initial price fluctuation? So at the start of the pandemic, what we saw is some temporary production cuts by major producing companies, Canadian-based Cameco and Kazakhstani government-owned uh, Prom. Now, the uranium industry has been struggling for the last decade with oversupply, given the shock to the system after the Fukushima disaster and Japan's subsequent pullout as a buyer in the uranium, uranium market. Uh, that oversupply has weighed on prices, so the shutdowns were seen as potentially accelerating the supply and demand imbalance. Well, after that initial fluctuation, the price kind of steadied before rising again recently. So what is the reason for this recent optimism in uranium? 
Well, interestingly, interestingly, there hasn't been another rise in the underlying uranium price like we saw at the start of the pandemic. But what, what we have seen is chemical stock price rising massively uh, since the beginning of December. And it's tough to pin down, but I'd probably argue that the, it's due to another pandemic-related shutdown for chemical, continuation of reduced production by Kazatomprom, as well as optimism for nuclear with the incoming Biden administration. President-elect Biden's choice for climate czar John Kerry has shown support for nuclear in recent years. Well, you mentioned both the companies that mostly control the supply of uranium, which also mean they could potentially control prices. So is the situation like the one that we've seen with oil and OPEC? I would say it's similar in the sense that OPEC generates about 40% of the world's oil production and Kazakhstan and Canada together control closer to 60%. But it's very different in that OPEC is a cartel. So they're coordinating production to affect the prevailing price. There's no such coordination in uranium. It's just each company making the best decision that makes the most economic sense for each of them. So what does all of this mean for Cameco? It's already risen, like you said, from the start of December. What go- what happens with the stock going ahead? So we've long seen Cameco as undervalued, given the difference in the spot market price of uranium, weighed down by oversupply, and the higher mid-cycle price that we believe the industry needs to maintain sustainable production to meet demand. Given that shares are up about 40% since the beginning of December, shares are starting to look roughly fairly valued for us now. Great. Thank you so much for joining us with your perspectives, Chris. Thank you. For Morningstar, I'm Ruth Saldana. That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. We hope you have enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. Morningstar Research Services, LLC, is a subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.